Welcome everyone. This is Dimitra Pervich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. What you're about to hear is a recording of a Twitter Spaces I hosted on Saturday, September 10th with Mike Kaufman to discuss the collapse of the Russian Northern Front in Ukraine. Apologies for the audio quality being less than ideal, but I hope you enjoy the content. Welcome everyone to another Twitter space on the war in Ukraine. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator and host of Geopolitics Decanted Podcast. Today we're going to discuss this incredible feat the Ukrainians have just executed in taking over 3,000 square kilometers of territory back from the Russians in the north in a matter of almost 48 hours. And I'm joined by Michael Kaufman, Russian military expert at the Center for Naval Analysis. Let's begin with an overview of what has just occurred in Kharkiv and parts of Luhansk and Donetsk Oblasts. And Mike, I think there's no better way to describe it other than a collapse or a rout. Russian military observer telegram channels are just in absolute panic mode here. So tell us what just happened and its significance. Hey, Dmitry. Uh, thanks for having me back on the Twitter space. So uh, it looked like Ukraine had achieved a very rapid breakthrough in offensive operation Kharkiv. I think most people followed it the last couple of days. They put Russian forces in a precarious position in a Zoom, especially once they were able to cut off the main ground line of communications to a Zoom by uh, threatening and then taking Kupiansk. And the long story short is that it is, in fact, the collapse of the entire pocket. It's forced the retreat of the Russian military from the sector. And it's going to now threaten and put at risk uh, Russian positions in Luhansk Oblast. And the situations have been unclear because Ukrainian forces clearly have momentum. Um, I'm just obviously unsure at this stage how far they're going to go and exactly where they're going to try to expand this offensive from the positions they've taken. So it's a, it's a very significant victory for uh, Ukrainian forces. And it, and it came rather, rather quickly, too. So maybe we should unpack a bit uh, how this unfolded and why. Yeah, let's talk about that, because for the last month or so, everyone's attention was on Kherson. And we should point out, and we'll talk more about this, the the fight in Kherson is, is con- continues, and there's a lot of Ukrainian forces there. Uh, but relatively few people were taking it, uh, much stock of what was happening in Kharkiv. Uh, and it appears that the Russians have pulled back most of their best forces away from the north and uh, the Donbass to reinforce the south. And that may have been one of the biggest blunders of this war. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure I would call that specifically a blunder, but the way I would look at it is that Kyrgyzstan is also itself a very significant but somewhat different operation, and that these are two interrelated coordinated offensives. And what happened was the Russian forces redeployed uh, most of their best troops to Kyrgyzstan, and they particularly took the Eastern military's district's forces off of this axis by Zoom, they redeployed them there. That left it largely open, and they actually did not uh, deploy any substantial amount of forces to try to cover this flank by Kharkiv, right? Most of the units that appeared to have been there was a fairly thin force of Rosguardia and mobilized LNR personnel. And the Ukrainian military had conducted a buildup in at least the, the past week or two by Kharkiv, 
I will be perfectly personally honest. I wasn't especially tracking it. I saw that there was some information about the buildup, but I assumed that Ukraine was going to conduct a fixing attack. And much of the front line actually had become very active because coinciding with the offensive in Kherson, Ukrainian forces were taking the initiative across uh, different parts of the line, including by Kharkiv and Azum and what have you. And clearly, they'd been able to mass an entire separate battle group and very rapidly achieve a breakthrough. Uh, I, I would say the two main blunders for the Russian military in this case were first and foremost uh, a massive military intelligence failure because they clearly didn't see this buildup and didn't react to it. Uh, and secondarily is the fact that the Russian military had still been trying to push largely unsuccessfully against the Ukrainian defensive line east of Kramatorsk. This is the severest Bakhmut line. If you've been following this conflict at all for the last two months, you've probably seen various reporting of sort of sustained Russian attacks in and around Bakhmut. Uh, most of that was led by Wagner PMCs and, and LNR units. But all the central military district forces were down there. And so, so, so just, just for everyone's benefit who is not following the map closely, you basically have three major fronts, right? You have the Southern Front in Kherson, you have the Donbass Front, and uh, uh, most of the Luhansk Oblast had been taken by the Russians over the course of the summer and they were continuing to press on the Donetsk Oblast, and then you had the Northern Front uh, with, with the Kharkiv Oblast. Yeah, so the, the, essentially, they, they did not redeploy any additional forces to the North. Um, they had a pretty vulnerable position in Azum, because Azum on the eastern side is flanked by the Oskil River, and there's a fairly small number of bridges that connect in Azum uh, to the Russian positions further east of it. And the Ukrainian forces very successfully conducted a, a pincer action where they attacked uh, north of Azum, broke through very easily through Balaklia, uh, rapidly achieved gains and pushed to Kupiansk, which is the main um, uh, rail hub as well. Actually, the loss of Kupiansk in some respects, from my point of view, is quite worse than the loss of Azum for Russian forces because that is the uh, main transit hub in that sector. And this made the Russian position of Zoom untenable. Uh, and very quickly, they, you know, I, I think I had a Twitter thread about this barely a couple of days ago. The, it was clearly Ukraine's plan was ambitious. And the goal of it was to potentially envelop and trap Russian force in the Zoom and cut off the, the ground lines of communications to it from the north. So let's talk about those three cities uh, or towns, Izum, uh, Kupiansk and uh, Lehman. Both are major railway hubs, and uh, uh, Izum in particular has been a ma major uh, supply storage facility, particularly ammunition supply storage facility, to the Russian forces in Donbass. So what is the strategic implications that they've lost all three, and their, what, what does that mean for their ability to continue offensives in the Donbass? So Izum was the main hub of operations uh, north of Slavyansk, right? This was the main... Uh, headquarters for Russian forces and for what was typically called the Azum Axis, right? And it largely been a wedge. To be clear, the Russian military has not been successful in pushing from Azum towards Slavyansk since they took Azum uh, quite a few months ago. And it, it, it was a sector that, yeah, I, I would say was not, not entirely static, but relatively static without much success for Russian forces. But they were holding it essentially as a flank and as a major pressure point on Slavyansk 
and they've been trying unsuccessfully to then advance from the eastern part of Slavyansk Kramatorsk after they, they took Severodonetsk Lysychansk. All right. To summarize it, what I think it really means is that uh, whatever whatever hopes the Russian military may have had of any kind of campaign against Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, that's now that's now over. I was always skeptical on this, as you know. We've spoken about this for several months, actually, ever since they took Severodonetsk. I was pretty skeptical that they uh, they had a shot at really pushing into Slavyansk and Kramatorsk to begin with. But from my point of view, that that basically um, now alleviates much of the pressure on this part of the Donbass, and it'll essentially put Russian forces on the defensive, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, certainly going into the winter. And it's, a, it's, it's going to be a question of uh, to what extent Ukraine can capitalize on momentum because they're likely going to push back the line towards uh, Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. And the Russian military right now is clearly in retreat and will probably try to reset a defensive line somewhere in Luhansk. Um, I'm, I'm surely speculating here because I don't know. This is a very rapidly developing situation. So... Uh, it, it, it remains to be seen, but they're probably going to try to reset a defensive line somewhere in Luhansk, east of those cities. So I was talking to our good friend, Dara Massacott. Unfortunately, she, she couldn't join this, this Twitter space today. But uh, the one thing that she continues to be questioning here is, where's the Russian Air Force? Where's the VDV? And of course, we know that the Ukrainians uh, have brought in significant air defense capabilities to that region. Uh, making it very perilous for the Russian planes to fly in to that war zone. The harm missiles seem to be having significant effect in neutralizing uh, Russian air defense systems. Uh, but, um, you know, she made, I think, a, a great point um, that I'm paraphrasing here. But, yes, it's perilous. But uh, if, if you're going to have uh, a massive collapse and a strategic defeat, um, like what the Russians have just experienced, why not throw everything into the pot and at least try to um, prevent the, the collapse of the pocket. Any, any thoughts on what, what is happening with the Russian Air Force? You know, employment of air power is typically the hardest thing to see in open sources, and you get a lot of uh, lagging information there. It just doesn't look like the, the Russian general staff was uh, able to respond in, in any coordinated fashion to the offensive. I mean, first, they there was a, a clear failure of artillery support for their positions forward. And some people said that's because the Guardia isn't actually very interoperable with Russian ground units and what have you. But the biggest issue is that they had no locally available reserves. And what reserves they tried to throw into the region showed up too late and failed. You actually saw uh, both uh, 90th Tank Division forces try to come in and you saw the 3rd Army Corps that they've been trying to train up and develop. Uh, drive, drive down, attempt to make contact, but then make it. On the Air Force side, I did see some Russian Air Force employment. I just thought it was especially effective because, first of all, the Ukrainian forces broke through very fast. I mean, I think folks don't appreciate how quickly uh, Ukrainian units bypassed Russian defenses, especially Balaklia. And uh, it, it, it's in some ways a, rem- a very remarkable offensive given given the speed of, uh, of how it was prosecuted. And the second part is, Ukrainian air defense is probably the thickest around Kharkiv in the Soblast, and they have quite a bit of it. Uh, and the Russian Air Force uh, has been, um, 
I mean, it's been, I, I think it's gotten criticism before typically from ground forces for being risk averse, but it's not really, it's not willing to put itself at risk from the looks of it. I think they did lose maybe one, at least one aircraft uh, that I saw in trying to provide air support in this fight. Um, yeah, but to an extent, the Russian Air Force certainly uh, has been neutralized uh, in this war. And how much do you think um, this success has had to do with the fact that these uh, towns were defended by mostly Rosguardia and uh, LNR conscripts and volunteers? Um, we've seen some videos lately of uh, mutinies in these LNR units that have been fighting really tough fights now for many months uh, without reinforcements, uh, been thrown into uh, the fight as cannon fodder. Most of them are conscripts and uh, probably are tired, exhausted, low morale. And Rosguardia, of course, you know, is basically cops with BMPs, right? So um, not necessarily um, significantly well-trained Russian ground forces. How much do you think that was an element in, in this uh, dramatic success? It's only a factor. I think the biggest factor overall was the fact that it was a very thinly manned uh, line in general. There were some regular Russian units there. I mean, the forces that seemed to have been in the area or were responding to the attack included units from the 20th Combined Arms Army and included units from the uh, 11th Army Corps, which is the Army Corps in Kaliningrad, and some elements of... Uh, uh, 26th Tank Regiment, and also 79 separate motor rifle brigades. So there are a couple of units in there that were regular Russian units. But on the whole, it seemed to have been um, very, uh, very, very sparsely manned. And I actually wasn't clear which units were uh, there holding supporting defensive positions and which ones were trying to respond to the Ukrainian breakthrough. But a lot of them were Western military district forces. And something worth keeping in mind is that the Western military district has performed, I think, probably the worst out of all the military districts so far in this war within the Russian armed forces, was badly mauled in the opening phase of the war and uh, probably had the biggest struggles in terms of force quality and ability to reconstitute itself uh, since, the, since the disastrous opening of the war for the Russian military in that, in that first month. Um, the LNR forces are, uh, of course, not only just sort of of lower quality, but more importantly, a lot of these people were forcibly mobilized in multiple ways. And the things I've seen so far in this conflict is that LNR units are not keen and will often try to mutiny, force the fight for territory outside of Luhansk um, and try to hold it. And actually, will give it up fairly quickly. Second, are much more likely to break to begin with and not hold a line. Actually, in Kherson, you saw some part of the line being held by DNR troops in the first opening days of the Ukraine offensive in Kherson, and they're the ones that broke, and actually broke very quickly. Uh, Rosguardia, I think, is almost self-explanatory in terms of their capacity to both hold, hold a defensive position, also even be interoperable with the, the rest of the Russian military. That's been a consistent challenge and problem in, in this war for the Russian forces. But the big issue is a structural problem that Russia has had throughout this war when it comes to manpower and force availability, right? And I've been I've been probably pedanting on the subject and talking about it on a regular basis in podcasts, but I think that's the overall overall issue that they've had is um, they do not have the manpower to sustain this war. They are running into 
a series of successive issues resulting from the piecemeal approaches they have taken, right, to try to create uh, some pipeline of troops in order to just even hold the territory they've taken. But ultimately, all this has been kicking the can down the road, and eventually they were going to run our road, right? The force quality is going to continue to deteriorate. They do not have the available forces to conduct rotation. The Ukrainians do. So Russian troops are over time get exhausted, right? And they have major retention issues because high-rank volunteers on short-term contracts means that those people after one contract of service are unlikely to return to another tour of duty. And, and a lot a lot of this will manifest over the next coming months, right? Because you had a lot of volunteers that maybe signed up before the war and their contracts will be running out here in, in, in this fall and winter. Yeah, but this, this actually very much is that manifestation, right? The core issues are retention, right? Uh, lack of forces for rotation, which is important. Cannibalization of the overall force, the fact that over time as you use your officers and enlisted professionals, you don't have anybody left to lead units, right? Or, or if you have people that you're pulling out of the force to lead these additional volunteer units and there's nobody uh, back in Russia to actually train up new forces and conscripts, okay? And so all of this over time leads to deterioration of the quality of the force and also uh, the kind of measures they're taking have allowed them to deploy additional units over the course of a spring and summer but in part, they're not sustainable solutions because they will themselves then generate these, these big retention issues. And you'll run off people that you can hire in that will. I'll give you a good example. One of the ways they've tried to offset the casualties in this war is just by mobilizing LNR and DNR personnel. And that policy uh, ran out, I think, of, of, uh, of its sustainability back in July. That is, they, could, I, they were struggling to find anybody else that they could forcibly press into service in Luhansk, right? And they were using these uh, mobilized personnel as dismounted infantry to fight for cities. So they displaced a lot of the attrition and casualties actually on people they mobilized from occupied territories probably since April. Um, and the dependency on LNR troops once again has showed itself here, right? And, and the problem with taking that approach. But some, some of the measures they've taken essentially just are not sustainable and have already been demonstrated to, uh, to, be, uh, to be approaches that they, can't, they can't, that they can't continue. So in general, I think what you're seeing is that uh, the lack of manpower, the lack of force availability, and the deterioration of Russian force quality has led to a situation where Ukraine has a clear manpower advantage, right? Uh, it's able to reconstitute forces better, can put together more than one uh, operational level offensive at a time, right? And because Ukraine has a manpower advantage, it can rotate troops off the line. This attack looks clearly done with fresh forces, right? So you begin to see the, the long-term advantage in manpower and equipment being provided by Western countries start to really take effect. Let's talk about the Ukrainian side. Uh, you and I recorded a podcast, Geopolitics of the Canada podcast, with uh, Sergei Grabsky, uh, one of the Ukrainian reserve colonels. And, and what struck me perhaps the most about what he said is how little Ukraine has trained for offensive maneuvers um, in the last 30 years. They've gotten really good at defense since 2014, but 
they've not really done offensive operations since the fall of the Soviet Union. And yet, in this counteroffensive, they've executed a pretty complex operation across a huge amount of territory, including what looks like to be a river crossing uh, over the um, Oskol River. Um, uh, Talk to me about that aspect of it. Have the Ukrainians been underestimated in their ability to conduct uh, complex offensive operations? It's a good question. I'm not sure they've been underestimated. I just think we hadn't seen them attempt something on the scale yet. And we're debating how successful it could be. But, okay, you you have to be careful with what you're interpreting here, right? So are you just interpreting the Kharkiv offensive or are you interpreting the Kharkiv and Kherson offensive together? And, uh, and, and you have to ask, uh, how much do we know and really understand about the operation? So from my point of view, clearly Ukraine is capable of conducting offensive operations. And clearly they're capable of uh, integrating different types of forces to engage in a combined arms offensive. Harker clearly has gone a lot better and much faster than Concern has, but it's a very different result than uh, previous more localized attacks that you saw the Ukrainian military conduct in this war. So on, on the question of what does this tell us about Ukraine capability, well, it, it tells us one important thing, which is they have the manpower advantage. And the question was beyond the training of sort of the individual warfighter, do they have, do they have the, the skill level at the, at the level of uh, the unit? And can they coordinate multiple gr- brigades uh, at the same time in the offensive? I mean, the answer seems to be yes. Yeah. The, the other thing that we should point out is that Ukraine is not achieving these successes cost-free. Uh, they've appeared to take um, some heavy casualties. There's reports of long stream of ambulances heading into Kiev. So um, this was definitely not an easy operation to conduct. Um, let's talk about her song. Uh, so there's not been much progress there on that front. Um, what do you make of that? What do you expect to see happening over the next uh, couple of weeks um, in that counteroffensive? The Russian forces on the western bank of the river uh, seem to be in pretty precarious position supply-wise because most of the bridges have been destroyed. Uh, the ferries are being attacked as well, the pontoon bridges um, by Ukrainian forces on a consistent basis. How sustainable is that operation there? I think since the beginning of this war, we've been talking about how that Kherson uh, uh, bridgehead uh, was very vulnerable. It appears to be even more vulnerable today, right? Sure. Well, Kherson, of course, shows the difference between uh, level of opposition and quality of opposition, what have you. Kherson actually, in some ways, from my point of view, uh, is is a somewhat larger operation, just because if you look at the, the size of the territory involved and the, the number of Russian forces involved trying to defend uh, this foothold in Kherson west of the Dnieper River, that said, these are two coordinated and interrelated offensives, right? Kherson, from my point of view, was uh, was meant to be a deliberate sequenced operation, right? Whose uh, operational approach was to essentially have three axes of advance, try to sever Russian forces in the northern part of the Kherson pocket from those defending the city of Kherson, and press them steadily against the river, eventually making that position untenable for the Russian military, 
and forcing them to retreat and abandon Kherson. And it also, at least from my point of view, and I'm, I'm obviously speculating here, I don't know the Ukrainian plan, but it also seemed that the Ukrainian vision wasn't to engage in some incredibly costly battle for the city of Kherson or a siege, but essentially try to force Russian units into a position where they'll retreat. And the Russian military, when placed in that position, by the way, clearly will retreat. We've seen it time and time throughout this war. In fact, we literally just saw it at a Zoom, right? So if faced with envelopment and being cut off for remaining kind of ground of communication, um, it's, a very, it's a very distinct outcome. And that actually be a much better outcome than uh, destroying, you know, or fighting for a city like Kherson. But from my point of view, Kherson was meant to be an operation that's likely going to play out over the course of weeks or, or coming months. And uh, it, the, the geography and, and the overall military situation is rather favorable to Ukrainian forces, but it's, it's been a pretty hard-going battle. And I'd written about it early on, if you recall, uh, commenting that in, in this kind of offensive, you expect to make initial gains. Then, you know, Russian forces will retreat from forward defensive positions to secondary positions. Uh, the offensive may appear like it stalls out or slows down. That may not be the case, but that's just sort of the natural, um, uh, typically the, 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 the expected uh, pattern in these kinds of operations. Whereas Kharkiv was meant to take advantage of favorable conditions created by the fact that most of the better Russian units were deployed in and committed in Kherson and to achieve a fairly rapid breakthrough, which it did. Uh, and I, I, I want to add something very specific because I've been asked this before now multiple times. Kherson is not a feint, okay? Because of very operation, there are two offenses progressing at the same time. And yes, Ukraine had enough forces for both. All right. Because I've had this question asked multiple times already. Right. Do you, do you think that Russia is capable of mounting a counteroffensive in the north to try to take back some of those um, towns that they, uh, the Ukrainians have just captured? Or is there just no force left for that? Uh, that is a very good question. I don't know. Because there's a... Look, it's very, it's very early into trying to figure out um, what amount of Russian forces retreated for the pocket, from the pocket. How much equipment did they abandon? How much ammunition did they abandon? Were the reinforcements that they were sending, the reserves, did they make contact? Did they not? They, did, did they not even, were they not even able to make it there? And what, what the losses were amongst the reserves that they were trying to sort of piecemeal feed in as reinforcements? And also to what lines the Russian military is currently retreating. All right. So unfortunately, I'm going to give you a disappointing answer. I don't know. Okay. And uh, Ukrainian forces may have been wildly successful or they may have been just, let's say, very successful in capturing a lot of territory and, and collapsing this pocket. But perhaps a substantial percentage of Russian military was able to withdraw. Or maybe they were able to withdraw, but they had to ban the equipment. So it could be any number of these things. Right. I'm just putting out the possibilities. And you have to give it some time for to get a better sense of, of how this played out. The one thing before this counteroffensive uh, was executed so spectacularly, the one thing I was paying close attention to is this New York Times story that was um, released early in the week uh, showing that um, uh, the administration leaks that uh, the Russians are buying artillery shells and rockets from North Korea. And I thought that was incredibly significant because we've, of course, been hearing about Russia raiding Belarus ammo stocks uh, over the last uh, three or four months now. Um, and in my mind, you just don't do that if you have years worth of artillery inventory 
um, that everyone assumed Russia had uh, at the beginning of this war. And uh, we're, of course, seeing you know, significant destructions uh, of ammo depots with HIMARS over the last couple of months by Ukrainian forces. And now it appears that they've captured quite a bit of ammunition in the Zoom as well. Uh, we're seeing some pretty dramatic pictures coming out of that uh, uh, operation this morning. Do you think that it's possible that Russia is running low on artillery ammo? And, and um, do you agree with me that that is hugely significant, given that this war, despite everyone's preoccupation with TBT drones and javelins and the like, has been mostly war artillery on both sides, as we've talked about on a number of occasions? Sure. So, yeah, I think it's well documented that artillery has had the most decisive effect in this war for both sides. And in fact, for much of it, since a good deal of this war was a war of attrition, principally leveraging advantages in, in artillery fires, ammunition became a very significant factor. And, and, and the ability for the Russian military to try to supply uh, forward artillery units, which is how it was basically leveraging its advantage in fires, was also a big factor. That's the main thing that HIMARS disrupted and began to, to attain some better parity in fires for the Ukrainian armed forces uh, after June. Okay, all that being said, I think it's actually, it's actually quite clear a couple months in that the Russian armed forces were running low on certain types of artillery munitions. For example, things like 122 millimeter artillery shells, probably high caliber uh, MLRS rocket ammo, and precision guide munitions. Um, I wouldn't overly jump on the North Korea story to assume that the Russian armed forces are overall uh, running low on artillery ammunition, although the honest answer is I don't, I don't think we know. Here, here's, what my intuition is on, uh, here's what my intuition is on this question. And, and I'm always wary of kind of the false certainty of, of, of uh, numbers and fuzzy math. I suspect that the Russian armed forces started this war with uh, less... Uh, in terms of artillery ammunition reserves that were serviceable uh, than, than many assume when we talk about kind of millions of artillery rounds. Second, I also expect that their usage of artillery in this war in general on both sides has been lower than typically publicly reported. For example, f- from my point of view, I think for the Russian armed forces, maybe an average of something like fifteen to 20,000 artillery rounds per day sounds reasonable relative to the 50,000, 60,000 numbers I heard rarely put, up, put out there that seemed rather unrealistic and, and, and rather lower for, uh, for Ukraine than that, just because Ukraine had, had run very low on artillery ammunition, Soviet artillery ammunition by May, and then had to make this very hard transition to uh, NATO standard systems with NATO uh, standard calibers. Okay, and the third part of it is you know, what is the production capacity for artillery in Russia? So my view is that that production capacity uh, in no way is going to keep up with artillery usage demand. I mean, to be honest, in a conventional war like this, that's very artillery heavy, okay, artillery ammunition is going to be rather finite, and I don't think any country's production capacity is going to remotely keep up with demand. I've seen the Russian uh, defense industrial complex try to ramp up production, but that's going to take them time, and it's still not at all going to be commensurate with their usage. Right. So uh, the big question and, and North is, Korea is not going to solve them either because there are real questions about their ability to maintain their rounds. And also, given how heavily dependent North Koreans themselves are on artillery and their war plans, uh, you know, um, uh, have um, uh, the doctrinal 
plans to to destroy Seoul and, and the DMZ with artillery fire, they're not going to empty their stocks out just to help out Russia. Probably the, the truth is somewhere along the lines of um, quality of North Korean artillery ammo is likely to be worse. Uh, and artillery ammunition uh, quantity does have a quality of its own. And the big question is, what are the artillery type, you know, uh, caliber types that Russia is really looking for from them? And, and is it because they're running desperately short or is it because they're, they're thinking ahead, looking at their rate yeah, my, of use? I, I don't, I, I've heard this theory a lot that, you know, they're thinking ahead and they're planning for, you know, a year or two years in advance. I don't buy that at all because given their difficulties with everything from manpower to uh, infantry fighting vehicles, uh, precision guided munitions, there's fires happening everywhere. And this idea that in the midst of a losing battle, you're thinking about what's going to happen a year or two from now and going around the world trying to purchase munitions for that, that makes zero sense to me. I don't think that's how the Russians think. Well, it's a good chance that just like in Belarus, they have gone to North Korea because uh, they have important categories where they're just running low. I actually yeah. think the biggest problem for them in the production pipeline is on the chemical side, where they're going to have choke points and making artillery ammo and ramping that up, particularly charges. Um, I suspect I suspect they're going to run to some of those issues because I've seen uh, I've also seen some fires in key facilities and plants in Russia over the last six months. Yeah, and let's not forget that a lot of ammunition was probably destroyed through HIMARS strikes in the last couple of months. But let, let's step back to the strategy for a second here. And given that this war is clearly not going well for Russia, given the manpower issues you've just talked about, the likely ammunition issues that we've just discussed as well, what are Putin's options here? Uh, you know, he's starting to lose territory. Uh, he's running out of men. Uh, what can he possibly do to turn this around? Is there anything at all? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think the first order question is, is this going to be the event that leads Putin to realize that Russia is uh, visibly losing this war and that the Russian military isn't going to grind the Ukrainian forces down like he has assumed for some time? You know, one of the, I think, more fascinating aspects of Russian decision making in this war has been that despite all the evidence, Putin's been operating under the assumption that the Russian military ultimately is going to win, which somewhat defies the objective reality of the situation they're in when looking at all the structural issues that the Russian military has in this war. So I think to me, the, the more significant question is, all right, is there, is there anything that he could do dramatically differently? I mean, I think enact stop-loss policies, declare this a war, and... Um, take the political risk of uh, of maybe using conscripts, uh, take this sort of so-called shadow mobilization and make it a real partial mobilization. But I, you still, would, I mean, you've talked about this. You still have an issue of who's going to train these people, right? You will. Um, and the pipeline for, I think, uh, turning... Uh, turning reservists into actual forces is likely fairly narrow. This is always the problem of kind of like the, the mythical notion of general mobilization because the Russian military is not a mass mobilization army the way the Soviet military was. So you can't just call up large numbers of men and then have the capacity to do something with them. You know, somebody has to train them. Somebody's got to house them. They have to have equipment. 
They have to be turned into units and all those things. That's why it doesn't work. Uh, partial mobilization. Although, although can, can I just counter that with one thought, and that is that Ukrainian military arguably was not a mass mobilization military either, right? But yet they mobilized, you know, close to a million men here in a very short order. That's not a counter. I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, on paper they did, and and how did it work? So the the Ukrainian military had major struggles in equipping those forces and training them and actually equipping them with the most basic level of equipment and took quite a few months to turn those units into combat credible forces beyond units that could just hold the line, right? A large part of the Ukrainian military, despite its huge manpower advantage, you could argue that Ukraine probably had or has had three to 400,000 troops under arms um, was very much spread holding the line. And it took time to, ch- to turn those units into the kind of forces that were capable of conducting counterattacks and offenses, which you're seeing now in September, right? If your argument is that Ukraine mobilized lots of forces into a million men, then my argument to you would be that that means Ukraine's had a 10 to 1 manpower advantage throughout this war. And why are we only seeing its effects in September? It's clearly not the case. So the point is that even if the Russians do something like this, it will take them many months before they can actually use them effectively, right? Sure. Certainly some months. And the, the throughput rate is likely to be quite low. In fact, the Third Army Corps, I think, is a very good example of them trying to uh, pull an effort like that together, institutionalize the um, institutionalize the creation of uh, an operational formation based on volunteers, but still quite challenging and problematic. And to me, probably all the biggest changes would have to come with very significant political risks and would have to come with probably reframing this from a special operation to a war, which very clearly Putin doesn't want to do. In fact, it, it, from what I can tell, uh, he has literally done everything he could to avoid that. Um, and, that's, and, and they've they have enacted every kind of piecemeal policy or kind of muddle through approach that they could in order to avoid making the hard decisions. Uh, and, and all of that's leading them, from my point of view, to one place, which is uh, that, that the, the war is not sustainable for the Russian military both because of the manpower issues, both because of the force quality issues, and both because of the competence issues. Last question, Mike. Uh, A lot of pundits since this war began have uh, been proclaiming the death of the tank, the death of the armored personnel carrier. My good friend Rob Lee has a great article in War on the Rocks debunking that um, assessment and and talking about the importance of tank and armor. and, but um, and, and by the way, Rob couldn't unfortunately join us this morning, but he's been doing some terrific work outlining what's happening in this offensive. Rob's been up the whole night. Yes, yes, he's getting some sleep right now. But <laughs> a number of us have been up the whole night. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is not my this is not my, my most uh, let's say like eloquent uh, eloquent way to put forward analysis. So I don't blame Rob for for not being on this podcast. Yeah, but but the interesting thing about this offensive from the Ukrainian side, is that it's been executed with tanks, right? So turns out that tanks, uh, the, the deaths of tanks have been declared prematurely. Any any thoughts you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, sure. So it turns out combined armed uh, mechanized defensives work with armor in the lead after all. And um, no shocker there. I, I've, uh, I, I, and, and Rob was amongst many people that were basically saying that we shouldn't be taking these lessons away from the war. Uh, force employment at the end of the day is king when it comes to uh, combat performance. And so a, a lot of the things I saw people writing about the death of platforms, the death of tanks, the death of this, uh, didn't, didn't seem very sound to me. But, you know, um, 
pundits are going to pundit. So it is what it is from my point of view. It, it is striking that here we are over 100 years since World War One, and the main lessons from this war is that artillery matters, armor matters, and uh, traditional maneuver and uh, effective employment of forces is king, despite all of the hype about drones and um, cyber and uh, uh, you know various other things that people have been uh, really enamored with, like uh, job ones. No, of course. And Dmitry, two things. One, remember, the death of the tank has been pronounced countless times. It was, you know, those conversations had after 1973, Arab-Israeli war. And uh, yeah, at the end of the day, you need boots on the ground to take territory or, or retake lost territory. Uh, and, and even drones, insofar as they've been used in this war, have been largely uh, to effectively pair them with artillery and fire and strike systems, right? And artillery has done a lot of the work. And it's done, it's inflicted much of the attrition in, in this conflict. And uh, this war kind of uh, teaches what, what, what I think are uh, long-standing lessons that major conventional wars come down very much to attrition, to replacement of manpower, material, personnel. And uh, which side can reconstitute its forces better and which side can address its, the sustainability of its force better. And over time, uh, that, that will all reflect itself on the battlefield. I'll say one more thing. I was talking to uh, some senior Ukrainian government officials yesterday, and they were telling me that the jamming efforts that the Russians have been executing, um, particularly in the last three or four months, has been really, really effective at grounding a lot of UAVs, particularly UAVs provided by the U.S. So um, it tells you that UAVs are not uh, a panacea, and uh, they have some real challenges as well from electronic warfare. Uh, capabilities and, and the Russians are employing it fairly effectively. Yeah, electronic warfare has been a significant factor actually from the very opening of the war. And it only grew uh, as the Russian military began to deploy it much more effectively. And uh, But it also has its own counters too. And there's a great deal that that about this war that I, I don't think we know or at least our assessments based on very imperfect information, right? And that's why I always caution people about early takes and trying to take big lessons away early on because, you know, just being frank, being humble about it, a lot, a lot of what we know uh, is, is likely to be either untrue or not entirely accurate. And a lot more is coming out about the use of capabilities or the performance of capabilities in this war that, that may not be merely visible or obvious and, and starting to get better information about that over time. Exactly right. Um, well, Mike, <clears throat> this was terrific. As always, thank you for your analysis. Thank you for jumping on so quickly. As I pinned you just earlier this morning about doing this, I know a lot of people appreciate it. Um, and we'll talk again soon. Take care, everyone. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Thanks.